Ruthless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here once again with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, we have a fantastic episode. This is our second in a series where we're tackling the top three DeFi protocols. This is how to go bankless with Uniswap. What are we going to cover, David, and why is it important? We are going to cover the complete scope of the Uniswap protocol, which is not a small feat. Uh, while Uniswap is very simple, the Uniswap rabbit hole goes very, very deep. Uh, there's a lot of layers to Uniswap that uh, it goes beneath the surface, and we're going to peel back all of those layers and explore all of them in this episode. Yeah, this is going to be fantastic. Uniswap is cool because it is one of the most decentralized DeFi applications on that DeFi trust spectrum that we've talked about in previous episodes. Uniswap is not a bank. It is not a company. It's not a user interface. This is a protocol. It lives completely on Ethereum, completely on chain. And the possibilities that it brings into the open finance Ethereum economy are <laughs> incredible. Um, and we're going to dive into all of them. But before we do, want to take a minute to talk about our fantastic sponsors. The first one is for our US listeners primarily. So if you have an IRA or a 401k, a retirement account, chances are it's jailed inside of your brokerage. That means you don't have good access to crypto. If you try to buy crypto inside of your brokerage, it costs you 5x the price. Don't do that. Don't get ripped off. What you want to do is break your retirement account out of brokerage jail. Rocket Dollar can help you do that. They'll set up what's called a self-directed IRA or a self-directed 401k. They'll help you with the paperwork. They'll help you with the transfers. They will help you get to a place where you can buy crypto on the spot market, on Coinbase or on Gemini in a tax-sheltered retirement account. This is a fantastic a financial hack for you guys. Uh, and if you go to rocketdollar.com, you can get set up today. Just use the code bankless and you'll get $50 off. That's rocketdollar.com. Use the code bankless. We have a new sponsor on the scene. One of my favorite Ethereum applications DYDX is the leading and most performant decentralized exchange in crypto. And the really amazing thing about DYDX is like Uniswap, it is entirely on chain. And so it is a non-custodial exchange where you are not trusting people with your money, but you still get to access all of the cool features and services that you would expect from a centralized exchange. Things you can do on DYDX are spot trading, margin trading. You can borrow ETH, you can borrow DAI, you can lend ETH, you can lend DAI. DYDX has originated over a billion dollars in loans over the last year and a half a billion dollars in trading volume. Something pretty new and innovative that DYDX is doing is they're bringing Bitcoin into DeFi through perpetual contract markets, which it's not live yet. It's starting, it's launching in May. So you can sign up for that alpha today. You'll be able to use Bitcoin inside of DYDX inside of the application, which, which is pretty exciting. Uh, I, I like it whenever I see some sort of uh, DeFi application starting to integrate Bitcoin and the Bitcoin price into their, their product and services. Uh, so we have a special offer for Bankless listeners. If you sign up with the bankless link, you will get 10% off of trading fees using our referral link. And that referral link is trade.dydx.exchange slash r slash bankless. Uh, it's a bit of a mouthful, so it's in the show notes if you want to go get it there. 
Uh, DYDX is, is one of my favorite protocols. They really do it all. They're basically anything you can do on Ethereum, you can also do inside of DYDX. Uh, so check them out. Okay, before we dig into the episode, let's talk some big picture stuff, David. So a couple things that are going on in, in the crypto, in the bankless sphere. So the first is this, Coinbase is adding a DeFi Oracle. So David, I, I got a question about this because I tweeted this out and um, somebody said, well, Ryan, I mean, doesn't this make oracles on DeFi in Ethereum more centralized if a crypto bank like Coinbase is providing an oracle? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's an easy thing to slip into because you know anyone who's in DeFi is always harping on centralized exchanges and that habit is easy to slip into. But uh, I would contend that this any further addition of more oracles always makes oracles more decentralized. So it doesn't even matter if like the White House or the Federal Reserve provided an oracle for DeFi. It's just one more oracle to add to the list. And so this is really good news. And and Coinbase of all companies of all institutions is definitely aligned with the crypto vision. And so, you know, their incentives are where we want them to be. Uh, I, I was once having a conversation with a friend of mine talking about how, you know, the only way you can get Bitcoin is on a centralized exchange. Uh, and he countered with, you know, well, if there are 30 different centralized exchanges all over the world that are very easy to get onto, well, then Bitcoin is actually decentralized. And so, it, you know, if, if Coinbase copies this model and then Binance is also an oracle and Gemini is also an oracle and Huobi is also an oracle, you know, we start to have more and more options which with where we can get our oracles from. And so, we, you know, we're not, we're not beholden to just using one oracle, right? The more oracles, the better. Uh, the really cool thing about this story was that um, Compound, the, the Compound finance team uh, was really pushing for this forever ago. Uh, and I believe Robert Lesher had this tweet where he was talking about how centralized exchanges need to be oracles for the DeFi ecosystem. Uh, and it, the, the Oracle standard, the code or the, the model of the Oracle that Coinbase used came from what Compound published. Uh, so tip of the hat to Compound and, and Robert Lesher for, for spearheading this a really long time ago. And I'm glad it's now coming to fruition. Robert's going to be on our next show, so episode eleven, folks. So uh, tune into that. We'll we'll ask him about this too. But yeah, I I, um, I tend to agree with you on this, David. So I think like if you look at the way the Maker Oracle works, and that of course uh, ma maintains the the peg for Dai and and ETH, and is a is a key component of the entire Maker system. But it has a dozen or so different oracles. Some of these are known by operated by known entities. Some of these are operated by anonymous entities. So say it's it's 12 or, or 15 oracles, adding another one from Coinbase and then taking the average price of all of those oracles, that's net additive to the system. It increases the decentralized uh, nature of the system, as you're saying, because you are gaining an additional node, an additional price source, and you can still take the median across all of those price sources in order to get your ultimate uh, maker oracle price. So I tend to agree with you. And we're actually going to be talking about another oracle design inside of this episode that is even more decentralized still. Um, Uniswap actually can be used. A byproduct of its exchange and trading capability is an actual price oracle. And that can be used inside of these DeFi systems too and further decentralizes the oracle. So Coinbase adding an oracle 
good news for DeFi, actually good news for decentralization. And exactly as you say, I think it will lead to all of the other exchanges incorporating and creating a DeFi Oracle in order to keep pace with Coinbase. Coinbase has really shown their colors, I think, with uh, the commitments to large amounts of USDC and USDC liquidity into DeFi applications. And now with this DeFi Oracle, uh, I'm pretty happy with with what Coinbase, how they're positioning themselves. They're definitely DeFi friendly. And having somebody like Coinbase, which is the leading exchange in the United States, I would say, uh, you know, making pretty bold statements about how they are DeFi friendly, a DeFi friendly company is is pretty, pretty cool. Um, I mean, they, they offer interest rates on your USDC in your Coinbase account. Now those interest rates are extremely low. It's like 1.5%. But uh, I, I think your protocol sync thesis, Ryan, where, uh, you know, c- companies like Gemini and Coinbase uh, integrate uh, DeFi applications like the DSR, uh, I, I'm, I'm bullish on that. And I think the, the, friendliness that coinbase is offering DeFi is a good sign for that dude are we gonna do an episode on the protocol sync man absolutely 100 percent yeah uh, so we're, we're, i'm giving a talk at the ethereal conference next week uh which actually so this is coming out on monday in may and so this my talk will be on thursday uh all about the protocol sync thesis and settlement assurances and so uh come and come to the ethereal conference and listen to that uh, and then me and Ryan are 100% going to do a, an epic uh, episode specifically about the protocol sync thesis. So it's going to be a good one. Yeah. So I'm super, I'm super excited about that conference, David, because not only do you have a talk on the protocol sync, we have a panel called ETH is money. <laughs> it's got you, myself, um, Eric Connor, Anthony Sassiano, Cami is is hosting it as well. She's moderating. It's going to be super exciting. We're going to talk about a lot of the topics we talk about in bankless and apply those maybe there'll even be some debate about how eth is emerging as a money system but it's going to be a fun one um you know another thing that we should probably talk about uh we recorded our episode with caleb on wednesday on that wednesday uniswap had what i might call its first initial uniswap listing like an iul almost like it it almost felt reminiscent of an ico so some of the very concepts that that we talked about in our conversation with caleb uh we saw them play out in real time what was your take on what happened maybe you could just you know describe the listing itself and uh, the token and then sort of what happened. And then I'd be curious to hear your take, David. So I'm all for experimentation. And this was definitely a a very interesting experiment to run. Uh, I think the outcome of this experiment is uh, don't do this again. Uh, I I think it was not the right way to issue a token for a number of reasons. Uniswap is not a way to distribute a token. Uh, So, And that's simply because and we saw this in the ICO mania way back when uh, the bat token sale was famous for uh, selling out of the entire supply of, of the basic attention token in the first like three blocks. And so that really rewarded technically adept people who were able to make a bot to make sure that their transaction got in on the first block. And we saw that with the UMA token listing on Uniswap as well, where people bought up a bunch of supply on the first block and then sold it on the third or fourth block after the listing. And so this this isn't how you generate an aligned community, an aligned uh, set of people that are your stakeholders. This is how you attract arbitragers and traders and people trying to make a, a quick buck. 
Uh, and so that that didn't look too good for me. I think there were there were much better ways to issue a token in ways that are more long term aligned with your company, with your project and the community holding your token. Uh, if you wanted to get your token into the hands of people, the uh, Uniswap is not people that are stakeholders and want to see the best for your company. I would not issue it through Uniswap. Yeah, and there, you know, there might be a better way that somebody can design a way to issue it in a in a more uh, fair way in Uniswap. Uh, but to me, this was not that. So I know the UMA token they they started listing at basically their the price of their last raise, so a market cap of UMA tokens of twenty seven million, which is high in and of itself when you consider um, there are currently no cash flows that I'm aware of accruing to the token nor is there a product that uh, we can get our hands on and use. But, but that aside, that was raised with accredited investors and, and VCs and that sort of thing. Um, but the, the net outcome after this Uniswap listing uh, with a very small amount of supply, so only about 3% of the total UMA tokens were provided as liquidity, the net outcome is that UMA as a token is the number five DeFi money protocol token on the market at 121 million right now. So I don't know, that's a 5x uh, or so of their last um, raise with VCs. So it did, whether intentional or not, um, this was definitely an experiment and, uh, you know, give give the team the benefit of doubt. Um, it's hard to know you know, necessarily if this was intentional, but it it uh, it had the effect of pumping the price uh, to a degree that is probably not sustainable long term uh, and is probably not conducive to growing a community. Um, so we'll see how this plays out. But, you know, there's a possibility here, David. I don't know if you agree or not, but it's, I was starting to get feelings of, oh, my God, this is like I, like the very beginnings of ICO mania again, only it'll be conducted on, on Uniswap. Uh, and, um, you know, we, we just need to make sure that the community is informed and buys into assets uh, if, if they're doing this that have long term value accrual mechanisms and that are, are fairly valued. Uniswap, I guess, is a easy place to issue a token because everyone knows what Uniswap is and it's really easy to go and buy a token. So I guess in that sense, it's making it more accessible because everyone knows how to buy and sell on Uniswap. So that and like maybe an accessibility argument is to be made there. Uh, but the the 2 to 3% of the total supply of the token made available on day one, it, it's hard to excuse that in my opinion uh, I, I think we i you said that you know you, we don't really know if if they were doing that intentionally or not i'm i'm gonna go ahead and, and be a little bit more critical th than that i i think that if they just decided that two percent was the right number and didn't think about the illiquidity that would re uh, result in uh, just only two percent and then the the price pumping effect that comes from illiquidity would would follow i i i miss, i think we should assume that they definitely knew what they were doing and again it goes back to the issue of this is not how you generate an aligned community an aligned network of stakeholders but it is how you pump a token really really fast in the first few blocks and that's definitely what happened and so um this doesn't sit really too well with me over the long term i think our best defense as a community against this sort of thing is to make sure we understand very clearly the value accrual mechanisms of all of these assets things went absolutely bonkers in 2017 because people put 
fundamentals aside and value accrual mechanisms uh, aside, and they just chase the pump um, on the bankless journey. We're not about that. <laughs> you know, this is about uh, long-term uh, fundamentals, the growth, the long-term growth of a, of an industry. And so, uh, you know, pumpamentals aren't something that uh, we get really excited about. So, uh, you know, I definitely agree with you there. So while we're talking about money verbs and DeFi protocols, here's one you absolutely have to check out. This is a lending and borrowing protocol called Aave. What does it do? You can put DAI into it. You can put ETH into it. It will take your DAI, it will take your ETH, and it will transform that into an interest-bearing asset. This is a great way to level up in the bankless money system. You can also borrow from it. We were talking about um, borrowing from various protocols at a variable rate, but this allows you to, Aave allows you to borrow from it at a fixed rate. So you know exactly what you're going to pay from one day to the next and one month to the next. Developers, you've got to check out their flash loan protocols. Groups like DeFi Saver have integrated these into their protocols, into their applications, and uh, created a lot of value. Go to Aave.com and deposit crypto to start earning or borrowing. That's A-A-V-E.com. Try it out. On your bankless journey, you might find that your bankless account is storing more value than your bank account. Uh, but you still need to buy things at the grocery store. You still need to go out and on Friday nights. And if all your money is in the crypto world, uh, well, you're ahead of the times, but you still need to live your life. And that's where Monolith can help you out. The Monolith DeFi card is a way to keep your funds in the bankless universe while still being able to buy things in the real world. The Monolith Visa card is accepted wherever Visa is, which is like the whole world. And it lets you use your DAI as it's supposed to be, as money, as a way to pay for things. Uh, so go to monolith.xyz and check out their DeFi card, check out their rates. The DeFi card is a smart contract wallet, which is, is something that we definitely have to get into as to what that is on Bankless. Uh, but it's a really cool way to protect your funds and still be able to use them. So go to monolith.xyz and get your DeFi card today. Well, without further ado, David, we should get to our episode with Caleb on the Uniswap protocol. This is how to go bankless with Uniswap. Welcome to our episode on Uniswap. This is going to be fantastic. Uh, David and I are here with Caleb Sheridan. He works at uh, Blocklytics which is a data analysis and services company that focuses on protocols like Uniswap. He knows a lot about it. Caleb, could you just begin by telling us a bit about your journey uh, in Ethereum, in sort of the bankless space, and how you stumbled across Uniswap? Sure. Uh, just as Uniswap is launching, I heard Vitalik speaking at ETH London, uh, and he mentioned Uniswap as one of these common goods projects uh, that, that was released that, that did not use a token model. Uh, and it was right, right as I was founding uh, my company, Blocklytics. Uh, and so it seemed kind of obvious to go and explore this project that Vitalik mentioned. Uh, as soon as I saw it and I saw the simplicity of it, I just got sucked in uh, and, and went and uh, did as much research as possible on, on the protocol and have been following along ever since. So the Uniswap without a token is something that, that caught your eye. What else about Uniswap caught your eye and, and maybe also about Ethereum at large? 
Uh, Ethereum is fundamentally useful. I mean, at, at this point, there are things that you can do on Ethereum with cryptocurrency that you know, we, we've, we've kind of been dreaming about for years. And, and one of those was swapping tokens really easily. And so getting into, uh, getting into Uniswap and seeing this public good that was available that made token swaps easily accessible for individuals was, was kind of eye-opening. I think before that, uh, you know, before Uniswap even, the, the user interfaces and the user experience of, of doing token swaps was really difficult. Uh, it would involve like going on centralized exchanges, giving them personal information, personal details, waiting for 30, 40, 50 confirmations to make a deposit, uh, and only then kind of dealing with uh, order book uh, layouts and, and order books. Um, and then at the end of all of that, you know, the, the money that, that was on these centralized exchanges was a lot of the times at, at risk. And so if you look at kind of when Uniswap came out, how the market was for trading tokens, and then this, this clean product with, you know, you, you have Ether and you want this other token, you know, just pick the amounts and hit swap. It was, it was really eye-opening and refreshing. Uh, and that, that kind of got me into the rabbit hole of, of Uniswap. It was just the simplicity behind it. Uh, and the fact that it was this public good really uh, helping uh, helping users out uh, accomplish this simple thing of, of swapping tokens. This is cool. So, so Caleb, let's let's dive into those first two. So, the first one you mentioned is exchanging and trading, right? So, this is basically a function that in the in the more centralized exchange, the crypto bank world, a Coinbase or a Binance might do uh, for you with with some sort of an order book, right? Um, but and the, and the second is actually providing liquidity. But let's dive into the first, so so folks, you know, kind of understand how this works. So if let's say I have a um, position in Dai, so that's a stablecoin we talked about in episode nine with Mariano Mariano Conte. Um, so let's say I have Dai and I want to exchange that for Ether. Uh, how does it work? What are the the fees for that process? Am I interacting with an order book of any kind? Is there like a peer to peer transfer going on, or how do I tap into that liquidity? Sure. So Uniswap is a is a decentralized exchange uh, where users can swap uh, Ether and ERC twenty tokens. The exchange itself is funded by its users. Uh, in many cases, it's funded by the same people who are swapping tokens. They become uh, liquidity providers. Who, who make the whole thing run and provide liquidity uh, for traders. Uh, so, you know, long story short, Uniswap is this uh, decentralized exchange ecosystem where traders and liquidity providers kind of all, all work together uh, to, build, to build financial markets between uh, crypt different cryptocurrencies and different tokens on Ethereum. I definitely remember the uh, the days of 2018 when Uniswap came out where, you know, I had my Binance account and I'm pretty sure the last time I've logged into Binance was the day that Uniswap came out um, and I became immediately um, a little bit more bankless as a result. So I definitely resonate with that. Uh, so let's start with um, some definitions. And I think we have a, a kind of a fun game ahead of us. Uh, can you explain Uniswap in 10 sentences, and then I'm going to ask you to explain it in one sentence. But let's start with 10 sentences or a paragraph if, if you can. So the first option with Uniswap, and the, the first thing that many people see on the page is that you can swap Ether for tokens. And there's an extensive list of tokens, uh, which we'll get into in, in a few minutes. Uh, this is kind of the most, at its core, this is, this is the service that Uniswap is providing end users. You, you can swap any given token for Ether. And you can even swap any given token for any other given token. 
The second thing you can do with Uniswap is you can provide liquidity. And when you provide liquidity, you take ownership of a given exchange pair and you, you, you share a portion of the fees that that exchange pair generates with, every, with all of the other owners. So in this case, liquidity providers are, are providing liquidity to facilitate trades and collecting fees as, as part of, of the, the protocol. Uniswap isn't just one thing. There's a bunch of different ways that you can use Uniswap. So can you go through kind of the, the various options that Uniswap provides people? What can you actually do with the application? When you make a trade uh, or when, when liquidity providers provide liquidity to Uniswap, uh, in this case, the ETH DAI pair, uh, liquidity providers provide uh, Ether and DAI into a smart contract. And the smart contract holds those two assets in balance. Whenever a trader comes through and wants one of the assets from the pair, so in this case, DAI for Ether, uh, they provide the smart contract with DAI, and then they take back an amount of Ether that the smart contract kind of just calculates on their behalf. So this is this is called like a, a, a price curve or something like that. You might have heard it uh, called a bonding curve, uh, which is like a maybe a questionable term terminology for it. But the point is that the price is determined by the smart contract, and the price is determined by the ratio of assets that are that are inside of that smart contract. Uh, whenever a trader does, mm -hmm. whenever a trader makes a trade with a smart contract, they essentially give it a surplus of one of the assets, like Dai, and they take out uh, some of the ETH from the smart contract. And here, two things happen. One is that the user pays a small fee. Which sits, which goes back into the small con smart contract. So the user pays at the moment 0.03% of a of a fee uh, in in ETH in this case, and then that addition that ETH sits in the smart contract and uh, and is essentially distributed as a fee to all, all the liquidity providers of, of that smart contract balance. The second thing that happens is that the price changes for future trades. So because because you've in this case traded die for ETH. Uh, you've, you've changed the ratio of assets within the smart contract. And so the new price for whoever comes after you to trade is going to be based on that new ratio uh, of, of what, what you kind of, uh, depending on your trade size. I think you were just about to tell us. So, so you're not really trading, Caleb, with an order book, right? You're, you're almost tra trading with a, a smart contract, some kind of a, um, like a, you called it a bonding curve. Yeah, that's exactly right. You're trading with a smart contract. And, and the idea is that this ratio of assets always needs to be held in a constant, uh, to, to a constant product uh, uh, in this case. So this uh, pricing curve, it, it, it has a unique property in that as, as an asset is removed or added, uh, the, the second asset or the asset pair uh, is increases. And the really unique property about kind of the model that Uniswap came out with is that this curve, you know, if, if you plot it on X and Y, you would see that it looks kind of like, um, uh, like a, like a square root. Um, but, but essentially this, this curve, uh, uh, goes to infinity on the Y and, and goes to infinity, uh, without touching zero on, on the X. And the idea is that, you know, it, it, if you deposit one ETH and 200 die today, in the smart contract, uh, that contract, no matter how many trades are made or, or what like size trades are made, the smart contract will never run out of, of those assets. 
It's just that what will happen over, over a bunch of trades in one direction is that the more popular asset will get more and more expensive. And so the idea is that you know this this kind of promotes trades up to a certain point, and then the price shifts, and then it it, it supports trades uh, back down to like that that asset's kind of market value or real value uh, external to the system. So to make this so to make this really tangible, Caleb, right? So um, if if I am on the Dai ETH pair and I'm doing a small amount of Dai, you know, say a hundred dollars worth of Dai. Um, you know, that, that kind of curve that you described is not going to be impacted so much. So uh, I'll probably get a pretty good price for that uh, die. So, uh, or for that ETH. So the price might be comparable to something I could get on an exchange. Slippage is a word we might use for that. That would be pretty low. It would cost me maybe, you know, 0.3%, so 30 basis points. Uh, in Uniswap fees, but my slippage would probably be comparable to to that of an order book exchange like a Coinbase. But if I really ramp up that volume and say I'm making a major purchase, I'm a you know a, a large market maker, and I'm purchasing a million dollars worth of ETH with my Dai. W- what happens in that case? What's my slippage like? Yeah, in in this pool right now, the ETH Dai pool has about a little bit over six million dollars of liquidity in it. Uh, and so the slippage on a $100 trade would be very negligible. Uh, and, and as you said, you would essentially just pay the exchange fee. The slippage on a much larger trade would increase, and it increases at uh, an increasing rate. So the, the bigger your trade is, the more slippage you would have. And in this case, you might have like 50% slippage or something like that. And so for, for these pools that, uh, but, but that's not to say that, you know, this is not for, for big traders or it's only for tiny uh, traders who want to trade ten or twenty dollars at a time. It, these these pools are actually supporting trades of up to hundred grand with very very low slippage. Uh, and the beauty of these pools is that those trades happen instantly. They happen in one transaction. There's no making a deposit to uh, an exchange and and you know eating up the order book or any of that. So if you really look at the slippage on even big trades, Uniswap in in these deep markets are are, are really it is really really competitive even with uh, popular order-based markets. Uh, and I, you know, I find that I, I'm, I'm just in awe that the, the system ha- has gotten to that point where liquidity has grown to a point that that Uniswap can be your only exchange. Uh, and, and that's that's one of the amazing things about watching uh, this protocol grow in particular uh, and, and get to this stage of, you know, being suitable for all kinds of traders. Uh, I would say that, you know, if you're really sensitive to slippage and, you uh, you want to avoid it at all costs. The way to do that is just spread your trades out over time, right? So uh, take take your $1 million trade and spread it out over a few days or a few weeks, uh, do, doing like a, a small fraction of it at once uh, and really watching the amount of slippage that uh, is affecting you. But I, I think that you would be surprised at how much uh, volume Uniswap can handle in, in terms of uh, 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 these deep pools. How has the liquidity in Uniswap changed over time? Uh, can you kind of uh, illustrate that graph for our listeners? Sure. Uh, Uniswap, being a Uniswap liquidity provider, it, it, uh, it's not easy to understand what your returns will be. So it's, it's based off of uh, demand for a token that, that is hard to anticipate. And it's also based off the relative price of two assets. So if you're just looking at the Uniswap ETH DAI pool, 
you're, you're kind of, uh, the price of ETH external to Uniswap really matters and really affects you. Uh, and, and essentially what, what liquidity providers are doing in order to uh, collect the, this, this trading fee is they're depositing their liquidity in such a way and promising to make trades and fulfill trades in such a way that, that it can actually kind of cost them money in the long term. So in other words, a, a Uniswap liquidity provider does not get the option to not take a trade that you know, looks bad compared to the current market rate. And so what may happen is that you know Uniswap liquidity providers uh, take a bunch of bad trades in a row, uh, and and the price ratio causes this this phenomenon called impermanent loss. Uh, but it is called impermanent loss because the price ratio can always return, uh, and and then the liquidity provider is not actually realizing that loss. It's just that on paper, the liquidity provider may take a few bad trades in a row, uh, and, and take some loss. So this is to say that. Anticipating returns as a liquidity provider is quite difficult. Uh, but what we've done uh, at Blocklytics is, is kind of try to say, okay, well, what have the historical returns been? Uh, and what does demand look like today? Um, and, and so we, we do provide that uh, kind of historical, those historical returns on our website, uh, pools.fyi. Uh, but in general, this, this is kind of one of the, the difficulties of, of, uh, of being a of of being a liquidity provider uh, and having people kind of choose whether or not to be a liquidity provider, it's a very hard question to, to answer. Uh, despite that, over time, as, as people have watched uh, liquidity grow in Uniswap and as people have watched the returns on these Uniswap pools, uh, we have seen liquidity growing over time. Uh, and so there was a slight, uh, in ETH terms, especially because each Uniswap liquidity pool is denominated in ETH, uh, in ETH terms, we've, we've just seen new, more and more highs. Uh, and at one point, I was looking at it on a weekly basis, it just, it just never dropped. Every single week was, was a new high for the amount of liquidity in Uniswap. And, I, and now that there's a long history of looking at previous returns and what happens in different types of markets, I think that people are more comfortable with getting involved and uh, accepting that, that there may be a little bit of impermanent loss. But in many, many markets, the trading fees have historically made up for that. Uh, and, and so right now we're kind of very close to an all-time high uh, in terms of liquidity, even after uh, a lot of liquidity was removed uh, following Black Thursday. Uh, and then obviously in, in dollar terms, we, we'd be very close to an all-time high at this point as well. Let's, let's touch on impermanent loss a little bit more. And, and then also, Every single Uniswap pool has two assets in it, right? And so each each Uniswap pool is its own characteristic. What types of Uniswap pools would see impermanent loss more than others? Yeah, great question. Um, I'll, I'll I'll break this down into maybe uh, three types of pools, and you know, broadly speaking, everything everything more or less falls into one of these three types. So the first type is. Uh, two assets like ETH and DAI, which are not necessarily uh, inherently linked or inherently related. Uh, and and you, may, you may have a personal opinion on where the price of ETH in, in terms of DAI is going in the future, uh, but, but there's no kind of reason why it, it can't go up and then you know, come back to this price or whatever the case is. So in, in this type of pool where, where the two assets are kind of uh, separate or non-correlated, the 
the impermanent loss uh, is kind of just that. Like you, you may check your account balance one day and see that you've suffered a lot of impermanent loss and come back the next day uh, and see that you, you've, you have no impermanent loss anymore. And so the idea is that this, this loss, which, which is what you risk as a liquidity provider, uh, it, 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 it comes in and it kind of goes away in, 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 in pools like Uniswap ETH DAI. There's another type of pool, uh, which is uh, what, what I would refer to as kind of a stable pool, uh, where it's uh, an example of this is the uh, Uniswap ETH and Synthetics ETH pool. Uh, and the idea behind this is that you take two assets that uh, you know, should have the same value. And because they should have you know, the same value or very, very close to the same value, uh, you know, by, by definition, there can really be no impermanent loss unless there's some catastrophic breaking of the peg. So in this case, Seth is uh, loosely tied to ETH, but broadly speaking, you know, trades within, within a range that's, that's very close to, uh, within a, a range that's very close to one. Uh, one, one to one ratio. So in this case, you know, it, traders just collect uh, trading fees and they don't really have too much risk of impermanent loss. Uh, and in these cases, you know, we see that the, the growth of this pool has kind of spoken for itself. So historically, you know, th this has been one of the biggest pools ever. Uh, one of the other biggest pools ever is the Uniswap ETH to wrapped ETH pool, which also is, is a pegged asset. Uh, and what we see is that, you know, traders are collecting uh, reasonable returns in those pools and, and so far not really feeling much in permanent loss at all uh, because the exchange rate has, has remained very, very steady and very, very close to one. Uh, the third type of pool that I'll just mention quickly is, is a pool where the token is designed to be inflationary or designed to be deflationary. Uh, in this case, you know, th there is a huge risk of impermanent loss. And so this would be things like uh, interest-bearing tokens uh, or certain deflationary tokens uh, that, that, have, that have kind of shown up over, over the past year or so. Uh, and these, these tokens essentially are designed in their mechanics to you know, gain value uh, and, and against ETH. And so what, what that causes is you know, the, these are much more at risk of, or the liquidity providers are much more at risk of impermanent loss if the, the token is designed to uh, change in, in ratio, grow or, or decrease in ratio against uh, ETH. Uh, so for example, in like compound tokens, uh, you know, th these make very poor pairs against ETH because ultimately uh, you know, the, the exchange rate of a compound token only increases uh, and, and therefore you know, it, it doesn't hold that same property of mitigating and permanent loss the way that uh, wrapped ether or uh, synthetic ETH, ETH does. This is it's so super cool. I mean, I, I think we'll talk about this a lot. Uh, the the idea of of permissionlessness. So anyone can go in and make a trade, and just as everything you were talking about about you know, becoming a, a liquidity pool provider, anyone can do that. It's permissionless. There's no identity required. You just have to have the assets, um, you know, fifty percent of each in a pool, and deposit those assets, and then you are effectively a, a liquidity provider. And different pools give you various rates of return. So if someone wants to increase their ETH-denominated um, returns, for example, uh, maybe an ETH-type pool might be, might be for them, maybe an ETH-die pool. Um, but, but you're in the data every day, Caleb. Can you tell us where the big opportunities are for 
being a Uniswap liquidity provider. So if I want to take my ETH and I want to make more ETH, you know, which pool should I deposit into? If I want to take my DAI and make more DAI out of it, where, where should I go? For people who, uh, let's say, like want to stay, so that I guess the the best pools for brand new users to kind of try out and dip their toes in are definitely the ones without impermanent loss, uh, you, you, you you know, or, or with limited impermanent loss or mitigated impermanent loss. So the popular pools like ETH Seth and ETH ETH Wrapped ETH are, are great examples of this. Uh, where where it kind of starts to get um, uh, tricky is let's say that if you care about your returns in terms of ETH and you want to stay exposed to ETH, uh, to join to be a liquidity provider in the ETH Dai pool it would require that you trade in half of your ETH for Dai, uh, and so you lose out on any upside on on half of your liquidity pool deposit. I think that for a lot of people that is uh, ha- has been sort of a deal breaker. Uh, now that said, there are ways of uh, you know using Maker, using some of these other systems to uh, deposit ETH in order to generate the die that you need, and then uh, deposit ETH and the uh, generated die against your, another a different ETH deposit um, in, into these pools, and then stay completely exposed to ETH. And one of the teams that's doing great work on making that process really straightforward and simple uh, is DeFi's app. Uh, that that kind of takes all of these different money Legos. Uh, and combines them in such a way to give users that that end uh, that end exposure that they want. Um, but I'll, I'll just say the, the the important thing to kind of figure out as a liquidity provider is what do you want to earn money in, or what what is your underlying kind of how are you going to count your your victory, right? And, and so if that's if you're really concerned about just stacking ETH, that's one strategy. If you're really concerned about uh, tracking wins in terms of Dai, that that might be a different strategy. Uh, and so I think kind of uh, in, internalizing that and figuring that out as a liquidity provider is almost as important as uh, pick, or even more important than picking out the which pool to join or, or whatever the case is. Yeah, so so we're definitely all about our stacking of ETH in the in the bankless uh, you know, program. It is you know uh, the reserve currency of, of of upside for this entire space uh, for sure. But but uh, increasing die denominated returns is also interesting. And I, I want to jump on that point that you mentioned uh, with DeFi's app. So that gives you the ability to essentially supply liquidity to these pools in one click, in one transaction. Uh, we'll include a, a tactic about DeFi's app and, and how that works in the show notes. But um, if you're just getting started, that's a really cool way uh, to do it. It makes it um, I- incredibly easy. But like, what are you seeing lately? So what kind of returns are we talking about on ETH or with DAI? Caleb, so are we talking like you know one to two percent returns on ETH over say a ninety day period, and and you know how about Dai and how does that compare out there to other DeFi protocol opportunities? Yeah, um, in in terms of high volatility, the ETH Dai pool just outperforms everything, and it's it's not even close. And, and so, kind of where um, it, it, it just outperforms kind of holding ETH in many many cases, and. Uh, you can look at the historical returns to see where this kind of breaks down, but ultimately, if uh, in some cases it is possible that you know if you had held your deposit separately or if you had held your ETH separately, you would have done better than the pool. And like today, that that's the case. So over the past thirty days, uh, you actually would have done better to just hold ETH than than be an ETH Dai liquidity provider. But if you look back, kind of historically, and over long periods of time. There's no question that Uniswap ETH Dai is, is a much better 
uh, option for, for certain users. So the, the returns that we're talking about uh, kind of vary. And over long periods of time, uh, we're talking better returns than what's possible in lending protocols, for example. So over a long period of time, what you're essentially doing is you're taking a bet on the transaction volume of Uniswap. Because every time there's a Uniswap trade, you earn a portion of the fees. You earn like 0.3%, right? So you're betting at some level on Uniswap over the long run. But over the short run, it's sort of a, a gamble based on the volatility of ETH, right? That's right. And if you, if you look at, you know, the, we spoke about impermanent loss and if you kind of look over uh, the race that liquidity providers are, are looking at is, am I going to earn enough in fees to cover whatever impermanent loss happens to me over a certain period? Uh, and if you look over a long enough period, uh, you know, in theory, you'll have like infinite trading fees that you collect and your impermanent loss will be, you know, reasonable. Uh, and, and so, uh, over like an infinite period, you know, you could say that, okay, well, this is definitely going to outperform, but obviously, you know, infinite is a really long time. Uh, but even if you look at over the last 90 days, uh, compared to ETH, so if you provided liquidity 90 days ago, uh, and you cashed it up today, uh, you, you would have earned an equivalent APR of 60% on top of, or above ETH holding ETH. So in, in ETH terms, you know, th these are very, very good returns. Um, and, uh, and I think like that's, you know, that's the underlying theme that's common in all of these pools is that the longer you hold uh, and the longer that you're a liquidity provider, the more fees you can collect and kind of even out the short term variance of uh, the, the price ratio of the assets. So we've been talking about impermanent loss and using Uniswap as an investment tool, providing liquidity to various uh, token pairs in order to you know, collect that fee. Uh, and, and get a, a passive return on your income. But there are other ways and other reasons to provide liquidity. Um, and at, at Realty, for example, every time we release a property, we put it on Uniswap, but then we also seed it with our own liquidity. And we don't really, we don't do that looking because we're looking for a return. We're looking to do that simply to provide liquidity. Uh, and, and one of the really powerful things about Uniswap is its permissionless ability to list an asset and then also its permissionless ability to provide liquidity. Can you just comment on that? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Uniswap has over 2,000 liquidity pools, uh, and that number on a daily basis is, is just growing. And the, the idea is that anybody can come through and list an asset. And what you guys have done with Realty is really amazing. Uh, and even in your case, you know, that that's an asset that um, has a whitelist and has, has kind of a permission set up uh, and it just kind of works with Uniswap. Uh, uh, and so, you know, you, you don't have to give up your permission uh, logic in your token to, to make it work with Uniswap. And that's a really amazing thing. And so there are a number of tokens like that that, that just kind of work with Uniswap uh, really well. And what what we kind of see is that Users are, have started to sell goods and services on the, on the network. Uh, and one of the early examples of this was from the Uniswap team itself, who sold socks uh, in a token called Socks um, uh, in order to kind of raise a little bit of money for their company. Uh, so what they did is they minted 500 Socks tokens, uh, added a little bit of ETH, and then let, let this limited edition good go off and, and start trading. Uh, of course, the token could always be redeemed for physical socks, uh, but what's happened is, is maybe more amazing than that. The, 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 the 
price here just kind of went up and like at the moment uh, socks cost uh, quite a bit and, and so what started at $12 uh, is now in the hundreds of dollars for a pair of socks. Uh, the long as initial liquidity providers you know the team is just earning fees on, on each of these trades uh, but what's amazing is is more that you know they, they produced this limited edition good and then immediately went went and found the market for it uh, and naturally the the price of a limited edition good just kind of went up and up and up with demand uh, until some of the first buyers who maybe bought it at twelve dollars uh, decided to sell it at like 40 80 120 dollars uh, to, to other people who wanted to hold these limited edition goods so if you're talking about something like price discovery on limited edition goods, uh, this is an amazing tool to do it because as there's more demand and as there's more purchases, uh, the price goes up. And so you meet, uh, you, you, kind of, you kind of find out what, what the real price of, of this limited edition uh, good should be or can be. Uh, many teams have kind of followed in suit. And in fact, we've seen uh, people selling their time uh, or even uh, things like retweets or uh, legal advice or whatever the case is. And, and so there are many of these kind of goods and services uh, now available on Uniswap. And I think that that's why we're seeing a lot of new markets created and uh, you know, quite a lot of innovation in the space. Um, one of my favorites is, is a, a, the CAFE token, which is a, a limited edition uh, batch of, of coffee uh, that was, that was pre-sold on Uniswap. And then the, the tokens themselves could be redeemed for for bags of coffee beans, uh, and and that type of uh, you know coming up with a product, making a token for it, uh, uh, adding it on Uniswap, and instantly getting a market uh, for your goods is is really incredible and really amazing. Uh, and one of a key feature about you know this this that makes this protocol work really well for uh, maybe the long tail of assets who otherwise maybe. It, you know, this this could have been too much work to set up an online store, or they didn't want to quite go through the process of uh, uh, of signing up for like uh, 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 credit card payments or whatever the case is. Instead, they you know create tokenized assets, add them on Uniswap, and then uh, collect uh, their their sales in ETH. And then the over the long term, you know, if that asset is really popular and trades a lot, they also just keep on collecting trading fees, which is which is incredible. So how does this compare to, you know, bootstrapping liquidity on something like Binance or a centralized exchange, an order book based exchange? If, if the Unisox team, Uniswap with their Unisox wanted to get liquidity for their, their Sox token, how would they even do that? Was that even possible before Uniswap? Uh, very difficult. And I, I think at the time, you know, with that Uniswap is coming out, we were hearing stories of uh, token listings costing hundreds of thousands of dollars. And compare that to maybe $2 worth of gas that you pay to create one of these markets, maybe uh, a handful of ETH and tokens to, that you minted to get the market started. I mean, from that aspect, it's, it's really amazing uh, what, what's possible here. Uh, I think that you know, when, it, when it does come to kind of bootstrapping networks, uh, th there have been a few teams that have done it really well. Uh, and, and to be honest, Maker and the Maker token and the Dai token used Uniswap uh, as one of the primary kind of liquidity vehicles. So in a time before they were, these tokens were listed everywhere, Unis Uniswap had some of the deepest liquidity and still has some of the deepest liquidity uh, for Dai and Maker. Do you know, I want to I want to sort of test this thesis uh, with you, Caleb, and you you too, David. So. 
I was trying to think, I mean, Uniswap has really taken off like a rocket as a DeFi protocol, like just growing massively. Its volume in in March was uh, incredible. Um, I think beyond what a lot of people expected. So like, like the question is, why? Why was it so successful? Why is it, you know, kind of this 10x improvement from alternatives? And one reason... I came up with. Uh, so at first I thought, well, maybe it's because it's more decentralized, more censorship resistant. And those things are true. But the one thing that sticks out to me and everything that uh, you, you were just talking about is its permissionlessness. So the fact that anybody can list a token on the exchange, it's, it's almost reminiscent of you know, the early internet where you, you had closed platforms like AOL, where you have to ask their permission to sort of list websites or, you know, in the Yahoo directory, someone kind of, you know, lists, lists a website versus the open internet, which lets anyone publish a website uh, anywhere uh, at any time. And then, you know, the, the best websites essentially rise to the top. It creates this long tail of, of really interesting niche websites, but also this constant churn of, you know, the most successful websites rising to this top. This Uniswap almost does that with, with assets. And I think the key part about it is permissionlessness. W- what do you think about that, Caleb? Yeah, I, I do agree. And I think what, what Uniswap has done quite well is made it really simple to go through these steps of, of creating a permissionless market. Uh, and permissionless doesn't just mean people. I, I mean, it, it, it does in a sense, but the other aspect of having a permissionless market is that it's extremely easy to integrate Uniswap into other products. And so what we've seen is like one of the driving factors in Uniswap's growth uh, in terms of volume is is definitely its, um, its ability for other projects to integrate it and and facilitate and and, and send trades to Uniswap in order uh, in order to make their own platforms better and improve their own user experiences. I think what you're saying, Caleb, is that uh, Uniswap almost exists as this infrastructure uh, for other money protocols. It's almost like we were, we we've talked in a couple of episodes about some of these money protocols, DeFi protocols, being almost like emergent organisms. And Uniswap is almost a, a, an emergent organism that eats uh, assets like ETH and DAI, for example, and spits out liquidity. And then it provides that liquidity as a pool for all of the other DeFi protocols. So what you're saying is it's, you know, they can, all the other DeFi protocols can tap into them and then bootstrap their own liquidity, have a, a censorship resistant, unstoppable um, way essentially to to trade assets and that's all been added into the ethereum uh superstructure as david would call it like this this kind of super organism now not only do we have a, a store of value reserve asset like ether we also have a liquidity machine a liquidity robot on top of that that is also um unstoppable in the same way that ethereum is now i, I want to dig into that though like like censorship resistant and unstoppable because we we talked in an episode about the the defi trust spectrum and we uh, we talked about uniswap being on sort of the the far end of the the most decentralized and the most autonomous uh side of the defi trust system uh, spectrum because it it really is kind of just just code 
uh, and it doesn't require human intervention or human governance um, to run. But like, I want to ask you, Caleb, is Uniswap really autonomous and really unstoppable? And like things like the user interface or the team uh, or even the, you know, the Uniswap.io or .exchange, excuse me, a domain name, are those vectors of centralization? And, you know, could those be stopped? The Uniswap smart contracts and Uniswap factory cannot be stopped. There's no, there's nothing in it that, you know, there's no button that somebody can press to turn off those smart contracts. Uh, you know, we did see that the Uniswap team uh, restricted access to their website and their exchange system uh, to a certain list of countries. Uh, but, you know, what happened in the days following was, was really amazing to see. So uh, different community members around published their own versions of Uniswap uh, on IPFS and made, made those available on IPFS. So the underlying smart contracts, uh, there's no off button, there's no off switch or anything like that. It's just that, you know, the, the website in this case, uh, uniswap.exchange was restricting access to some countries. Uh, but, but then of course what happens is that, you know, these, the website is, is, was then made available on IPFS and, and where, where it's extremely redundant and, and essentially available for everybody. Uh, I think, you know, that, that's an amazing property. I, I, I probably disagree that, you know, it, it there is some choice that users are making. Uh, and, and so I would have to say that Uniswap only runs forever if liquidity providers are there kind of accepting the deal of, of providing liquidity in exchange for, for, for uh, trading fees. And so at, in some cases, there is this human element of like deciding, you know, it, should I put my liquidity in this pool, in that pool? Uh, should I support this project by, by adding liquidity or whatever the case is? And so I wouldn't say that, you know, it's, it's devoid of, of human decisions or something like that. I think that we see, uh, we see a lot of human decisions based on what, uh, what pools are the deepest and uh, uh, how, how winning kind of the liquidity race. Uh, because at the end of the day, if every liquidity provider withdrew their liquidity, then that would essentially stop a, a, a Uniswap, uh, uh, a Uniswap pool. But that is a decision that you know would be a collective one that everyone makes, uh, and not a forced decision like an administrator withdrawing everybody's tokens or something like that. Uh, and, and it makes it makes an extremely interesting thing to watch as Uniswap version two comes out, which is that the team themselves cannot force people to upgrade. You know, they they actually have to make if they want people to move to a version two, they have to make a more compelling product. Uh, that people actually want to move away from version one to version two. Uh, and, and so they've actually kind of said themselves, you know, version one is going to live forever. It's always going to be there. Uh, and, and at the end of the day, it's up to users to, to decide, like, uh, you know, it, will this thing live on as a, as a public good or, or will they move their liquidity, attention, and trading elsewhere? So you said that there is some human component to it because, you know, ultimately it's humans that are choosing to provide liquidity. Uh, but I'm actually going to push back on that and say that the rewards or the returns offered by Uniswap turn people, it forces people's hand. And so while there is a human ultimately hitting the deposit button, Uniswap actually creates incentives to you know force the hand of people. So at the, at the end of the day, all blockchain systems are, are human systems, right? Like even with Bitcoin, you have to choose to run your own node. Uh, but with with Uniswap, and I want to get I want to get into both the topic of Uniswap as a DAO and also Uniswap as uh, this perpetually growing feedback loop. Uh, and and 
And so the original uh, definition of a DAO is something with humans at the periphery and, and code at the center. And the code at the center has this inherent feedback loop where you know, more, some, some people decide to just come and deposit some liquidity, and that makes some people come and decide to trade, which gives those liquidity re providers returns, which those returns incentivize further liquidity, uh, f further liquidity deposits, which then allows for a wider participant uh, pool of people to come and trade on Uniswap without, you know, severe slippage, right? It, the more liquidity inside of Uniswap, the more uh, viable it is for larger and larger people. And then when larger and larger people come to Uniswap, there's more trading fees going to Uniswap, which incentivizes further liquidity deposits. And then that in turn feeds back into itself and allows for further people to make more trades on Uniswap. And so while I think that, of course, everything has this human element, this internal mechanism, I think, forces people's hands and almost... Uh, promises the growth of Uniswap as an application. Uh, do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. So I, I really buy into um, Uniswap being some kind of a, a DAO-like structure. Uh, but ultimately, what, what you're describing is a virtuous circle where as long as traders show up, liquidity providers will will be there to accept their trading fees. Uh, and in this case, the the parameters that Uniswap kind of guessed for trading fees and and everything else, you know, were, were suitable enough to actually grow these uh, these markets into into really substantial infrastructure and really substantial uh, liquidity pools and, and as a, as a public good. So you know, I think it's it's just been incredible to watch the growth of Uniswap and watch these virtuous circles work themselves out and work themselves up for. Uh, you know the, these these the, the most popular Uniswap markets. It, it's it's really stunning to watch uh, ha happen in, in kind of almost real time here. One thing we haven't talked about is uh, how other experiments like this have been tried in the past. So maybe a, a couple to uh, reflect on, Caleb. So the first was Bancor, which actually had a similar concept as Uniswap. Um, why why was Uniswap more successful and why did its growth accelerate while uh, bankers sort of stayed uh, stagnant do you think yeah at, at some point very soon after launch um, you know this little project with with a unicorn uh, emoji logo uh, started getting daily trading volumes like above above this massive ICO project uh, Bancor uh, ultimately the two technologies are, are quite similar uh, and, the, and the two product offerings are quite similar. But for me, I think that the difference lies in how easy it was to start pools on Uniswap, how easy it was to start providing liquidity and get to, getting to the point of the virtuous circle. Uh, whereas on Bancor, everything was a little bit more difficult, a little bit more restrictive. Uh, the, code, the code is more difficult to, to read and parse and, and integrate into smart contracts. And I think at the end of the day, if, if you're looking at the developer community, who wants to integrate something that, that, that that's you know infrastructure should be simple so that it's secure uh, and I think like that that is like one one of the key points of, of looking at Uniswap you can see it you can read the contract in a few hours and figure out like yeah this thing is is gonna is gonna run for a while uh, I think that that's that's kind of ultimately what um, what, what made Uniswap really popular initially and, and got its volumes and kickstarted its volumes that uh, 
has now allowed for, for this long tail of assets to, to live on its platform and, and be traded every day. I definitely like the the Uniswap approach too. It's I think you said it when we were getting started with this that uh, you were attracted to Uniswap because it was a public good. We had just come out of the ICO craze and Bancor, you know, I don't know what they raised, 150 million, uh, and here's the little Uniswap with a you know hundred thousand dollar grant from the Ethereum Foundation, creating something that's better. Was it ten thousand? It's just some 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 uh, tiny amount. One developer. It's actually Hayden Adams. I, I believe it was his first actual uh, software program that he ever built, um, and he did this and outcompeted a hundred and fifty million dollar ICO. I think that just this shows you that uh, what you need is a good mechanism, uh, and you know, simple is better. Um, th- there are some other decentralized exchange approaches that have been tried on Ethereum that are still in um, in 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 progress and getting some uptake too, but how would you contrast Uniswap and its success to something like uh, the zero X protocol, which is more of a, uh, a peer to peer type order book uh, protocol? What's, what's the difference in your mind? I think order books have places. Um, I'll, I'll just say when, when it comes to a, a product like Uniswap, where you do trade against a smart contract, it, 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 it's frictionless. I mean, it really feels like magic the first time that, that you swap tokens on it. And when it comes to integrating token swaps into smart contracts and into applications, that, that same frictionless experience exists for developers. And so if you're saying like, well, you know, why, why can't we make a you know, order book exchange that, that, that makes everything completely smooth for users? I just think that it's very difficult to um, com- compete with a protocol that's that's built to do one thing in one transaction, uh, and, and so at, at the end of the day, the, this thing is the scope of Uniswap is not huge. Uh, at least Uniswap version one, you know, the, the scope is just token swaps uh, and, and liquidity provision, uh, and, and it's very good at what it does. You know, it, it doesn't it doesn't overreach or extend. It makes it really quick, simple for users, uh, and, and I think that is very very difficult to compete with, and makes it extremely compelling infrastructure layer. Uh, you know, whereas with order books, they're, they're, they are just more difficult to use, uh, generally. Yeah. There's this concept, I think that we've seen, um, repeated in the most successful money protocols, DeFi protocols so far, and that is, uh, their tendency to pool state together. And when I say state, I mean, basically capital pools, asset pools together so that you're actually as a user interacting with the contract itself the capital pool itself and drawing on on that liquidity you know synthetics has done this fairly effectively maker has also done this effectively and it's kind of a, a contrast to the the more the peer to peer approach that zerox has taken where you know for every sell you have to find a another peer who's who's going to buy with this the liquidity is always there so you're just trading with the the, the money robot you're just trading with the uh, the pooled capital, and it, it seems like that is a much more scalable way to create these money protocols, and, and maybe why we've why we've seen them be so successful. But is there an upper limit to that? So I think um, maybe maybe some of our our Bitcoiner friends m- might say something like, "But yeah, like Uniswap's great; it's a nice toy, but I mean the volume's happening on." Bitmax, the volumes happening on Binance and, and Coinbase, 
and it'll never be able to compete against these centralized exchanges. What do you say to that, Caleb? Uh, yeah, I mean, we're kind of celebrating that Uniswap hits 10 million uh, average daily liquidity over over uh, like March. But I think I, it's just a different system. It's 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 just not comparing the same the same thing across uh, both products, and so there is a lot more. Uh, volume on on other products, but you know, for me personally, I don't feel uh, I don't feel as as invested in whatever happens to Bitmax and their liquidity or whatever the case is. I don't, I don't feel like Bitmax is doing something good for the Ethereum ecosystem uh, the, the same way that, that I definitely feel that, that way about uh, the the Uniswap uh, liquidity pools. So Caleb, an article came out not too long ago talking about the the core mechanism underlying Uniswap, but not just Uniswap, some other uh, very integral DeFi protocols like Balancer and, and Curve Finance. And, and this mechanism has been called a, a constant function market maker. Now, this isn't exactly a simple algorithm, at least to explain maybe through a podcast, but I hope you can do your best in, in explaining explaining the, the role of a constant function market maker at large, not just in through Uniswap, and then kind of maybe explaining the, the pros and cons of, of that in comparison to the legacy alternatives. The constant product market makers are, are you know, the, the fancy math behind uh, the curves, the pricing curves that we were talking about earlier. And they, they are what set the rules that liquidity providers have to trade for. So if you wanted to think about this as, you know, like the house, uh, the house in a casino game or something like that, imagine that liquidity providers are that house where, you know, in a game of blackjack, they, they abide by certain rules, hit on certain numbers and so on and so forth. In these cases, the, the constant product market makers uh, are the set of rules that, um, that liquidity providers play by in order to facilitate trades for the traders. Uh, and in exchange, of course, they get the uh, trading fee. Uh, which is like the house edge uh, uh, for providing that liquidity. So in the case of Uniswap, the math behind the constant product market maker is quite simple. So it's X times Y equals K. Uh, and the idea is that this, this uh, constant product of X times Y, which is asset A times the, the balance of asset B in the smart contract, uh, always equals some constant. And so whenever there's a trade, uh, that constant needs to remain the same. And whenever liquidity is added or removed, that constant also needs to be the same. Uh, and so the, the idea is that, you know, these are the rules that everyone in the system plays by. Uh, in the case of Uniswap, it, it's a very, very simple calculation. It's designed for two assets and is not really designed for, for more assets. And so now what we're seeing is a very high degree of innovation in terms of the uh, the types of pricing curves that are being provided. Uh, we're seeing things like uh, multiple assets being batched together uh, into liquidity pools and the price being some function of all of those assets, uh, uh, different, different price ratios. Uh, we're seeing things like the pricing curve being amplified uh, at, at, a specific, uh, uh, at a specific price. Uh, so in the case of kind of stable pools, uh, where the two assets are, are pegged very closely together at a specific uh, uh, price ratio. Uh, the curve itself is designed to make better use of the underlying liquidity uh, by, by uh, kind of flattening itself out around that, uh, around that price target. 
And so the idea is that, you know, it, it, you know, who knows if Uniswap got the fee correctly, who knows if they got the exact math right for this pricing curve. All that we know right now is that it was very simple. And what we're seeing now are alternatives coming along that are more complex and trying to tweak and tune the pricing curve a little bit to meet certain goals. So I think we're, we're just getting started in what I would probably consider, you know, Bancor and Uniswap have been kind of phase one uh, or year one even of, uh, of liquidity pools. And I think we're just on the cusp of, uh, you know, phase two, which, is, which are these more complex pricing curves and, and more bespoke pricing curves to specific sets of assets. As, as a kid, Caleb, I used to watch this show uh, called BattleBots. Right, is basically the idea of like you get to like a pe- people uh, design two robots, and like one will have a hammer on top that swings, and the other will have like a, a saw of some sort. You put them in a ring, like the octagon, and they fight, and you see which one wins. Right, this is kind of what this reminds me of because you're, you're essentially you're taking these math formulas, these constant functions or constant uh, products as you call them, and you're you're putting them in the ring. That ring is the Ethereum economy essentially and you're they're fighting they're all fighting for liquidity right they're also helping each other but uh ultimately it's kind of a battle between these bots between these math functions uh for liquidity and some might do better in some circumstances say stable coins and others might do better in more general purpose circumstances say you know like uniswap's very simple uh, function for for all assets. Uh, it kind of reminds me of that. Is that am I, am I way off base here? Is that what's going on? I, I love that metaphor, and, and I, I think that's a perfect way of looking at it. Uh, you know, in some cases, you you want the robot with the hammer, and in other cases, you want the robot with the uh, wedge. And and so I think, <laughs> you know, uh, I think that what we'll see is depending on the asset and the types of assets that are being pulled together. Uh, certain protocols will win and certain robots will play well uh, and, you know, against another type of robot. Uh, and then in other cases, we, we may see that a, a different protocol wins for, for a different class of assets. Um, you know, I, I, this is one of the, the more exciting things going on in Ethereum from my point of view. Uh, these money robots, I really believe, have uh, a chance of changing how we, how we create markets uh, everywhere. Uh, for limited edition goods, for bootstrapping uh, uh, token network liquidity, uh, even for initial token sales. And so we're even seeing uh, teams uh, offering their tokens for the first time in almost like a, a Uniswap initial coin offering uh, type type of uh, situation. And and so for me, I, I, I see that there will be a very bright future for these liquidity pools. And at the end of the day, it benefits traders to have a little bit of competition uh, it, it benefits the people that are building on top of this in infrastructure to have some of this competition. Uh, and ultimately, you know, the, the, the traders will go where the best, they're getting the best prices at the cheapest gas. Uh, and the, the, the liquidity providers will follow. And, and then ultimately, uh, the, the developers may follow them or they might just integrate whatever's easiest. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that it's going to be a really interesting uh, next like six months watching these, these math functions battle it out in, uh, in the money robot, uh, robot wars. But, you know, that, that's kind of where we are right now. And, and so this, this is like a particularly exciting uh, point in the journey, uh, and uh, many many protocols are kind of announcing their version two, including Uniswap, 
uh, and we're kind of going, um, we're, we're getting to see that next iteration of, of this financial product that, that I really believe can be mainstream, uh, which is just incredible, incredibly exciting. It it is super exciting, and I you know I think I want just want to emphasize because we should we should zoom out for for a minute. So, what all of this is doing essentially is it is adding a permissionless liquidity source as a public good to the Ethereum network and the the Ethereum economy. That's the net benefit to the system of Uniswap existing and Uniswap playing its you know scarcity game as as we've called it in the past because everyone has a an opportunity to to trade as a protocol. So no no bank required essentially. Anyone has an opportunity to list their asset. Again, no exchange, no bank required. Anyone has an opportunity to bootstrap their asset. And this is additive to the Ethereum economy uh, in general. It creates a, a bankless way to complete all of those money verbs. And it does so as a public good. Um, and I think we're just beginning to see the secondary effects of what a public good as a liquidity source can do to the Ethereum economy and, uh, and, and, and for these other money protocols too. So we're just at the cusp. But there's one last thing I think we should talk about here on the subject of, of public goods. So we've, got, we've talked about Uniswap so far as being a public good for liquidity. But in Uniswap V2, it, it's doing something else. Um, it's, it can actually be used as a price oracle. And I want to discuss that with you, uh, Caleb. So for, first, can, can you talk about what a price oracle is and, and maybe why it's important? Sure. So a price oracle is uh, defining a price of the assets using some underlying data. Uh, and, and typically, you know, Ethereum knows about Ethereum. It doesn't really know anything else about Ethereum. And so typically these price oracles may come from markets external to Ethereum with data that's brought on chain by Oracle services. Uh, but what Uniswap is proposing is they're saying, look, we have, uh, we have, we know every trade that goes on on Uniswap. They're all on chain. So why don't we just look at the price and then we'll have this on chain price source where we don't have to worry about if uh, you know, a, a, an exchange misrepresents price of an asset, or you know, if we miss a transaction, bringing that API data on chain or something like that. We don't have to worry about any of that. It's all sitting right here. Uh, now, teams have have previously tried to use Uniswap as a price oracle, and there's been uh, you, you know some some downsides to doing that, or some potential attack vectors to doing that. Uh, so one of these one of these attack vectors is essentially if if you trade, if you make a really big trade on Uniswap, you can crash the price of an asset and then use the crash price of an asset to carry out some other transactions uh, elsewhere on the network. Uh, and so what Uniswap is proposing in its next version is actually to add some time waiting uh, to, to its price oracle. So in other words, it wouldn't just be a matter of making one trade, maybe using a flash loan or something like that, but it would actually require a sustained uh, downward pressure on the price to uh, manipulated it, it, its on-chain price oracle, which is uh, time-weighted. So that that's kind of the uh, idea that they're proposing. Uh, I, th I think it's great that they're branching out in, into using uh, using their trading data for for another public good here. Uh, and I'm very very eager to kind of see what happens with this. I, I almost see this as uh, you know they, they've 
they created uh, obviously this this amazing public good that, that we're, we're spending so much time on. But uh, I, I think that this is another one that, that could ultimately uh, uh, be quite powerful for the network. So recently we discussed the mechanism of constant function market makers. And, and one of the many reasons why those things are cool is because every single um, constant function market maker produces an Oracle. And so not only Uniswap is an Oracle, but also Curve is also now an Oracle and Balancer is also now an Oracle. And then we also discussed the perpetual feedback loop of Uniswap growth, where liquidity begets liquidity. You incentivize, you put in liquidity, you incentivize trading to incentivize more liquidity. And all of a sudden, you know, Uniswap can, it can grow into this very large, uh, high liquidity structure. And for things like a constant function market maker that has a large amount of liquidity that produces censorship resistance in the Oracle. And so that same, and that, and that same liquidity bootstrapping strapping mechanism also applies to things like balancer, right? And so maybe if both of these applications, uh, you know, grow and grow and grow in liquidity, they're also growing and growing and growing in censorship resistance of that Oracle. Uh, do you think that that is the long-term solution for the Oracle problem inside of the Ethereum ecosystem, or is there still a chink in the armor somewhere? I, th that's kind of the question. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure, to be honest. I, I think that, you know, time waiting adds some guarantees uh, in theory, uh, but we've seen some very clever attack vectors. And so if we're talking about kind of building, uh, you know, using this as a, as a core piece of infrastructure or something like that, uh, you know, I, I think that we're going to see, uh, you know, over the next year, two years, three years, if this is a, a suitable uh, price feed mechanism. Uh, in terms of kind of the types of projects that, you know, might, End up end up building on this. I, I think that what we could see are are, are things like uh, prediction markets and uh, options uh, options mar decentralized options protocols and, and things like that, where you know you you really need a strong guarantee on the price of an asset over time, uh, and, and this this may provide it. Uh, however, I, I will say that it, it's just not it's the security guarantees uh, are just not quite clear to me, and I know that. Using uh, Uniswap as an Oracle has kind of backfired in the past. Um, you know wh whether or not that's it's, it's not really Uniswap's fault, but but it hasn't. It, it, there have been issues with uh, relying on kind of decentralized um, uh, prices pricing from from Uniswap uh, that that kind of make me nervous for <laughs> for the first few applications. Uh, but I do think that as as these initial applications roll out, we're going to see some new and and cool uses uh, uh, from it. Uh, ultimately, the, the the main advantage of having it on chain and having it through Uniswap is that uh, it is like unstoppable, sure, uh, but it's also very cheap. And I think that you know between being unstoppable and being very easy to query, uh, you know that's that, that's where the advantage will be for up and coming infrastructure projects. Yeah, absolutely. And the nice thing about oracles is, of course, um, they they can be additive. So if you have a set of oracles and you add an additional oracle. Uh, then you can use that and and take the average. You can medianize across all of those, um, so it can kind of add to the decentralization, even if it's not used exclusively. So let let let's finish with this, Caleb. So what's really the end game for Uniswap? How big could this thing really get? And you know what would it what would the world look like if if Uniswap you know won? Just in terms of asset trading on Ethereum, I think that that's that's a huge uh, you know goal to 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 ultimately bring in more volume 
uh, than say centralized exchanges, I, I think are an easy target. Uh, in order to do that, you know, there are definitely some challenges that need to be overcome. Uh, but I do think just, just based on the user experience of Uniswap and the permissionless nature, and really the trustworthiness of integrating it into projects uh, because of its, its permissionless nature, it, 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 has, it stands a very good chance at, at, at you know, growing quite large. Uh, as far as I understand, the you know the end game is that there's obviously a team building this, uh, and, and I think that you know there will probably they will probably need to be raising money out of Uniswap. So far, there has been no money raised uh, by the team off of the protocol itself, with the exception of selling limited edition goods. And so I think you know at, at some point there needs to be like some kind of uh, you know share of, of these uh, these trading fees. Uh, that go just a little bit beyond the liquidity providers to ensure that you know Uniswap uh, developers and, and community developers are, are motivated to uh, continue growing the, the the ecosystem and innovating in, in the uh, constant function market maker space. So I, I I believe that that's built in as like an option, uh, but but in in Uniswap version two, but set kind of off by default. Uh, but but imagine that you know a, a lot of the concerns around um, uh, I, I guess being able to make more transactions through these Uniswap markets or being able to utilize liquidity better or being able to support new asset types for liquidity providers in more profitable ways. These are all kind of uh, easy targets uh, uh, for, for a well-funded team to uh, kind of take on. And I think that that's kind of the, the, the intermediate steps towards uh, uh, taking over the world with the, uh, liquidity pools. So maybe a token in the future to fund the public good itself uh, could could happen at some <laughs> point. Caleb, <laughs> this has been fantastic. Thank you for telling us all about Uniswap. Uniswap is one of the three DeFi king protocols that we are talking about in this series. Very exciting stuff. Uh, it could definitely grow quite large into the billions, maybe trillions someday. Uh, you know, it's not out of the question. It's not it's not crazy. Caleb, can you tell the listeners where to find you on socials, where to learn more about the, the analytics projects that you're working on? Yeah, you can find me at Caleb Sheridan uh, on Twitter. Uh, and you can visit the website pools.fyi uh, for more information and statistics about liquidity pools, including Uniswap. Uh, those are definitely the, the two best places uh, uh, to find me online. Uh, th thank you very much for having me on. It's, it's really been a pleasure. Uh, I really enjoy being able to have the opportunity to speak about Uniswap with you. Uh, it, it's, it's really, really an honor. Fantastic, Caleb. Thank you for joining us. So actions for our listeners today. We've got some fantastic articles for you to read, one of which Caleb actually wrote. Uh, that was published on Bankless, uh, How to Make Money on Uniswap. David takes us through Uniswap as an emergent organism, the underlying infrastructure of it in another article. We also have uh, some material about the rise of liquidity robots. So catch those articles if you're interested in learning more about Uniswap. Also, we encourage you to try it out. Uh, go to the Uniswap website, actually exchange some ETH for DAI, swap some tokens. Uh, if you're feeling particularly brave, research the liquidity um, returns on pools.fyi. That is a site that Caleb and his team put together. It's fantastic for kind of seeing the range of returns that you might expect in each, in each pool. 
Um, guys, risks and disclaimers. Ethereum is risky. Crypto is risky. Uniswap is a risky protocol as well. This is not for everybody. We, we told you before, of course, we are headed on the West. This is the frontier. You could lose what you put in, so be careful out there. But we're thankful you're with us on the journey. Thank you for joining us on Bankless Episode 10.